And today we get to uh, what this lesson is called, Biblical Anthropology, Getting at the Heart. And we'll go through some scripture here in a minute, but I'm going to look at what the Bible says um, is the heart of the matter, which is our heart, and how oftentimes we are looking at the fruit of things. <clears throat> when I see someone get, um, get angry at a person, we tend to think, well, help them count to ten. Or help that person that's doing whatever's get, making them mad stop doing that. And those may be short-term helps, but they are always, they're never going to fix the problem because the heart of the matter is in the heart, not the person outside that's causing, so to speak, the anger. You may have... You may be able to uh, relate to some of these. Jane struggles with anxiety and bitterness toward her parents. She's anxious about finances in her marriage, and though her husband has done nothing to indicate he would ever be unfaithful, she can't help but be suspicious of him. She also wishes that he would romance her more and take her out on more dates. She is tired of feeling anxious and suspicious, and she just wants to feel better so that she can do a better job of loving God and others. The counselor at her church has had her memorize Philippians 4, 6 about not being anxious. And Psalm 56, 3 about trusting God. She's reading some books on Christian communication and shorting, writing short summaries of each chapter a week for her counselor to help her learn how to communicate better with her husband. Her small group leader helps to keep her accountable in following through on what passage, passages say she needs to do. So if that's, the, uh, if that's the hypothetical situation, would you say that's biblical counseling? No. It's not biblical counseling. Now, is what she's doing good? Yes. <clears throat> but in a sense, I, I would say it actually falls quite short of true biblical counseling because we are to be reliant upon God's Word, so memorization is good. But we can also approach that as if it's a self-help situation. If I could just memorize enough verses, read enough books, talk to the right person, you know, 2 plus 2 is going to equal 4 eventually, and this is going to solve my problem. But it really is boiling down to simply that here's the rules, follow these rules, and you'll get this result. And that's not, that's not biblical counseling. <clears throat> that's not the approach that we see in the Bible. And I think... We've all fallen prey in our own lives or in our communication with others into that approach as well, that we just try to stop doing something or stop feeling a certain way or try to start feeling a certain way or try to start doing something. I mean, we're here at the beginning of January, and this is what people do across the world. Let's start trying to do something different. Let's start trying to feel different, and it does not work very well. And it's not as if we just don't have enough accountability or we're not reading the right book or we're not memorizing the right scriptures or we don't have strong enough boundaries. It's Thursday. There's a heart problem here. <clears throat> and typically, that's why we did Alice Trebek's sermon on the sufficiency of scripture is we tend to then go to the Bible and not really believe what it teaches about us in our sinful state. <laughs> We, don't, we know we're sinners. We know we have a sinful state, but we don't really read into that part. We're just looking for, how is that going to help change me? 
If anthropology is the study of human beings, what we want to seek to understand is a biblical anthropology. The Bible reveals that the heart is the primary target as we seek God-glorifying, Christ-exalting change. We don't just seek external or superficial changes. We want to help lead a counselor to have new tastes and new desires. Bob, a couple weeks ago in the pastor's perspective on the church email, sent out a book, uh, I mean an article there, um, The Expulsive Power of New Affections by Thomas Chalmers, a Puritan writer. And I'd encourage you to read it because that's his whole point. New desire. You've got to change your desire. The desires that come from the heart, that's got to change. And you get rid of the bad ones, not by just stop doing the bad ones. You get rid of the, the heart's desires that you don't like by gaining the right heart desire, which is for God and to glorify Him and exalt Christ. Why is it God? Why is it that when we change it from the inside out, it is God glorifying and Christ exalting? And the answer is because it's only through the gospel and Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that we can even have the hope to change, and so that when we do change, we don't look to ourselves and say, well, I just did that, I stopped that. No, we look and see, it was Christ in me, the hope of glory, that allowed me to change, and therefore I'm totally dependent upon his ability to do so, and I give him all the glory for it. Look on your handout there, I think you've got it. The first one would be defining the heart on your handout. Your handout gives three, and I think they do a good job of giving the three main. There's plenty of others you could put in there, but the three main ways to describe the heart of a person, and it's not the physical heart. We know that. It's the spiritual heart. In fact, uh, Scripture in the Hebrew and or the Greek, oftentimes in Scripture, the way they translate it, it's, it's actually the center or the core of something. Jonah 2.3 does this, and Matthew 12.40 as well. That it's the central core or the central part of who we are. Another way to describe this would be that it's the inner person. Scripture, quoting from uh, David uh, Paul Tripp's book, Scripture often divides human beings into two parts, the outer and the inner being. The outer person is your physical self. The inner person is your spiritual self. And when the biblical authors want to describe our inner being, it uses the term heart. And if you were at Wednesday Night Bible Study, we talked about Luke 11, and here's Christ rebuking the Pharisees saying, you're cleansing the outside, but you've got to go to the inside. So even there, Christ is delineating between the outside physical package and the inward person, which is the heart. And we come to know uh, our deepest struggles by looking at the heart. Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. Just as if you were to, to go to this well out here, you could contaminate this whole building by a few drops of poison in that well. That's the source of the water that's in this building, and that's the heart is the source of all that comes out. And so we've got to protect and guard our heart. The heart is an all-encompassing term. That's C on your handout there. The different parts of a biblical anthropology, and I think this is important to realize, when you look at the scriptures, you see words like the mind, you see notations of the will, the emotions, the spirit, the soul. All of these are parts or functions of the biblical, biblical heart. 
So these are separate entities. So oftentimes we think of, well, it's the mind and the heart. Yes, yes, the mind is thinking things, but it's, it's, a, it's a part of the actual person, if you look at the heart as a person. Christians understand that the heart is the real you. It is the essential core of who you are. Solomon writes, as water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man in Proverbs twenty-seven nineteen. Much like water that reflects back the image of one's face, to really get to know someone, their character and who they are, you need to know their heart. We use the word transparent. Well, what does that mean? That doesn't mean you're going to tell people about what you made, what you put in the muffins to make those delicious blueberry muffins for breakfast on Tuesday morning. It, it means that you're getting down to what's going on here as compared to just externally what's happening. I did this, 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 and this this week. Well, that's external. But why did you do those things? That's the heart. And oftentimes in our conversations with people that we, we're looking for the, those facts, which is really what they are, the mundane facts. Hi, my name is Cody. I was born in New Braunfels. I'm five foot nine. You know, I have four children, been married eight years. You know, those are all facts. I enjoy this, this, these are my hobbies, this is what I like to do, these are my accomplishments or my failures. Those are just facts. And oftentimes we're tempted to to stop there as compared to if you really knew me, you'd say, well, Cody also struggles with this and Cody fights this and is tempted by that. <clears throat> and I, uh, we also understand as well that f- the facts aren't useless. If I was to say, hi, my name is Cody. I'm 32 years old and I was physically abused as a child, that's a fact. Does that going to play into maybe some heart conditions I'm dealing with? 100% yes. So they aren't useless, but they, we, don't, we don't stop there. Because I could also say that and not have any difficulty with my past because of God's grace and allowing me to deal with it, but I could be. And so you don't stop there, you continue to press down. But at its best, facts are really the fruit. They're really the outside. They're really the external. They're really the trail that's been left behind by whatever the heart is emoting. The heart is foundational, number or the second, I guess it would be the third thing on your handout there. The heart is foundational. Let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 6. Look with me at verse 43. <clears throat> We're going to spend a few minutes on this passage. You have it in your handout as well. Christ is using the metaphor of trees and fruit. I think we've probably all read this passage, but let's look at it. Verse 43, follow along. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. 
Christ is starting with this passage here, talking about fruit, and he makes some interesting points. For instance, if a tree is a good and healthy tree, it can only bear good and healthy fruit. I think you should also note verse 44, for each tree is known by its own fruit. That's a warning as well, as much as it's an encouragement. So you look at a good tree and it's bearing good fruit. You look at a bad tree and it must bear bad fruit. And each tree is, is individual in what it bears. But it's also, in, in a sense, a warning because if you're in an orchard of good trees and you're the only tree not bearing good fruit, you're not known as a good tree just because you're in the orchard. And that's a, a warning for the church, in a way, for, of Christ saying, you can go to this church and look like a good tree because you're in the orchard. But it's individual. As much as this is a corporate body, each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. And that's why oftentimes people have such a difficulty when they say, when they hear, oh, that person's a Christian. Really? Man, I don't want to ever attend church. I heard this week a gentleman who. Uh, by all intents and purposes, a strong Christian. And his wife is as well. But her grandfather was a pastor, and he was one of the most hypocritical man, men she ever knew. So she doesn't want anything to do with the church because of him. Now, her whole, her whole theology of a church is skewed, not to point to that, but to point to the fact that this is why it's so difficult for us when we hear someone or when a non-Christian hears something about a Christian and then they see the fruit that doesn't match. It's like looking at down at a, a thorn bush and you can remember, remember the time Bob did this in the main service. He had a mesquite thorn bush with a bunch of grapes on it. It looked odd. It wasn't right. It feels out of place. So you can know a lot about a person by their fruit and by the quality of their fruit. And the quality of the fruit is due to the quality of the tree. Verse 45, Jesus tells his audience and us what he is driving at, and that's not how to grow good trees, but the fact that these are an example of what happens with the human heart. Out of the, the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And it's interesting, he uses the, the word fruit again here. Good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. What good fruit is he talking about? It can be a wide variety of things, but what he's talking about is what you see on the outside. So, for example, instead of fruit or good, we could say thoughts. The good person... Out of, the good, out of the treasure of his heart produces good thoughts or good feelings or good choices or good actions or good relational interactions or good hopes or dreams or good financial choices or bad financial choices or good parenting or bad parenting or a good marriage or... The list goes on and on and on. But what is the, the fruit comes out of the heart? 
the heart is foundational. The heart is at the core of it. So if we would have a feeling of sorrow or confusion or anger or joy, that comes from the heart. If our discipline or a lack of discipline in, our, in doing our devotionals, that comes from the heart. That's not just, I'm too busy or I'm stressed. It comes from the heart. Or I, I'm attending church regularly or I'm not attending church regularly. That comes from the heart. My prayer life is okay or my prayer life is good or my prayer life is bad. That comes from the heart. Where does all this fruit come from? Well, we know it comes from the heart. Jesus, who made us and knows us perfectly, says it comes from what's in our heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. We might tend to think that we have control over our words and actions and that it's purely cognitive. And your words and your choice of words or your instruction, instinctual words have a root and that root is your heart. We've all heard the phrase, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Where'd that come from? It came from your heart. So if you ever hear yourself say, we won't even get into others, yourself say, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Yeah, you did mean to say that because it came from your heart. That's a really hard one. Yeah. <laughs> we know that the, from the Bible that we are born into sin and nobody is righteous, not even one. And as we noted earlier, only God can finally change our hearts. But there's also hope in this passage. Look at verse 45. There's a very interesting note here. Because it's, when, it's, when we're talking about fruit coming out of an actual tree, the tree is just producing this fruit. But Christ adds something when it comes to the heart that isn't included on the tree side of things. Verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. So there's something there. There's something there about there's an ability that we have by the grace of God to store up things within us, good things and or bad things. And there seems to be a way to accumulate this good or bad in the heart. And if you just look at this verse, you don't see really how that is to take place. And Christ even rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew 26, saying, you're cleaning the outside instead of the inside. In fact, go to the inside, and the outside is going to become clean. So there's a way to do, by the grace of God, something on the inside. And one example would be certainly spiritual disciplines, or the, having consistent spiritual disciplines. That's showing the fruit of your heart. But you can also store God up in your heart. We know that according to Psalm 119, verse 11, I've stored up my word, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So there are ways to store up the good in the heart. As an example, <clears throat> we thought about at the beginning of this where we talked about Jane and doing some different things but not addressing the heart of the problem instead of going after the fruit. We can all fall into that and it's as, it's as if you're taking going into a um, an overgrowth of bamboo. You've probably all seen this. And then you go in and somebody goes in and just chops it all off right at the ground level. And it's a very short amount of time before all that bamboo has come right back up again. 
And that's what happens when we don't go after the foundation, the heart. We can go in and chop out the fruit, but it's just a matter of time before the root again produces whatever is coming, whatever that root is. So before we move on, do we have any – we've talked about a lot here, but any, any thoughts on this, any questions before we close or work toward the closing? Yeah. So as a like individual, if you feel like, okay, the fruit of my life isn't so good, what would be the process? Yeah. Well, the process isn't you. And I think that's, uh, that's where we're going to go here in a second. But we have to understand that the problem is in here, but the solution's not. The solution's not here. So we go outside and we go to Christ, and then we go to his methods and different things. I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to send everybody this afternoon, hopefully, if not tomorrow morning, an article that I would encourage everyone to read that deals exactly with that, uh, written by, by uh, David Pallison. Yes? Yeah. And, you, and that's the question, right? How do you change that heart? So let's look at a little more at the heart, and then we'll get into that. The heart is an idol factory. This was the quote by Calvin um, that our hearts produce idols at all times. And it's not the, the heart is uh, the fundamental problem, and it's simultaneously the only solution, right? It's not the solution that we just have to do it ourselves, but if the heart's the problem, you've got to fix the heart to get the fruit right. And how do we do that? Well, one of the things we've got to understand is that that heart is always worshiping because it's an idol factory. We're always worshiping something. And our worship is never neutral. It's always something or someone or myself or God. And the Bible makes this very clear. Let's go over to Exodus chapter 20. We see the uh, Ten Commandments here in Exodus 20. And we see, especially in the Old Testament in particular, that most of the objects of idol worship were, were inanimate objects. They were made of metal or they were made of wood. And they were created as explicitly for the purpose of being worshipped. And it's not the objects were that were the problem. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. It's not the objects that were the problem. It was the heart reason for why those objects were being created. Because God certainly has given us the skill to carve an object or to make something beautiful or to create. In fact, that gives him glory when we do so. But those things that he's given us to allow us to do are never to become the object of our worship. And you see this in Exodus. You see this in the Ten Commandments. First of all, you see the first four commandments are talking about our relationship with God. And then the last six, five through ten, are talking about our relationship with people. And the last, and, and five through ten are really the fruit of whether or not you get the first four, the root, correct. And I would say even that three and four are really the fruit of one and two. So if you look at three... You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
And then verse 8, number 4, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. He drives to the heart of the problem, to the heart of the matter. How do you use your words and how do you use your time? How do you use your words and how do you use your time? If you're using your time and your words out of place, it's just a fruit of the fact that one and two is out of place. Your worship before God is not where it should be. Something has slipped in there. Ezekiel 14, which you have uh, not written out, but on your, on your hand out there, Ezekiel 14, 1 through 7. <clears throat> Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Set up idols in their hearts. So there was the inanimate object that they were worshiping, but Ezekiel's pointing as a prophet of God to the fact that it wasn't this that was the problem, it was this, the heart that was the problem. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore, speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have deserted me for their idols. Therefore, verse 6, say to the people of Israel, this is what the Lord, sovereign Lord says, and this is what Samson had to do, repent, turn from your idols, and to renounce all your detestable practices. When any of the Israelites or any foreign residing in Israel separate themselves from me and set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. So, Bethany, in first answer to your question, it's to repent of the sin. <clears throat> Idols are things that have grown to a place where they have too much influence. They have too much influence. They're controlling our lives. And they get to a point that they initially control our lives from pleasure or what we get out of it, what we receive. But it gets to a point they control it out of worship. So, for instance, you can. there's people that have the Internet as an idol. It initially starts out as something that they really enjoy doing. And in that time, it's not wrong. But then it gets to a point where they're allowing it to have too much control over their lives. And now they find themselves going to it and having no enjoyment out of it whatsoever. They're just doing it because it's an idol. It has too much influence. And they can control our hearts. You notice the phrase there in Ezekiel, they put a wicked stumbling block before their faces. He says it a couple times. Idols blind us. Psalm 135, verse 18, talks about how the idols that are, that are dead, they're just wood or stone, are like the person that worshiped them. Their heart is dead. Parsing out the influence of idols in our heart can be one of the single most important things you do to help those who you are ministering to. If you can begin in your own life with the scriptures and in your life helping others to kind of get in there and pull the fabric apart and begin to see what the specific idols are, you can really begin to make some headway in change and the change begins with repentance recognizing that what i'm doing that is bringing about this fruit is sin 
the specific sin that it is, and then begin the process of repentance. Repenting of it, turning from it, running from it, and turning to the right thing. That process can take a time. That process can be difficult. Getting to know your heart. Getting to know your heart. How do we know what is going on inside the heart? Ideally, it would be great if we had this spiritual x-ray machine that you could say, well, that's going on on that side and that's going on on this side, but it's quite more jumbled than that. We saw uh, Luke 6, Jesus' word picture of trees and talking about fruit. We see that the heart, according to Proverbs 20, verse 5, is, a very, uh, is very deep. Uh, it can be very difficult to get into. It can take a bit of work. But you can ask good questions to yourself or to others to really begin to get to what is going on in the heart. Consider an example of a Christian who struggles with lying. You can start by asking fact-finding questions to understand the circumstances that surround the sin. When did this problem start? How often do you lie to others? What situations are you more likely to lie? But here's some more, here's questions that would drive to the heart. What are you trying to cover up by your lying? What self-centered mo- motives make you lie to others? What's the payoff for lying? And do you really think it is worth it? How do you plan to give an account to God when you have to explain your lying habits? Here's some other heart-oriented questions. And if you want to have a f- huge list of them, go online and type in David Pallison x-ray questions. And David Pallison has a giant list of heart questions asked, and these are a few of them. What do you love and hate? What do you want, desire, crave, lust, wish for? What desires do you serve and obey? What do you seek, aim for, or pursue? What are your goals and expectations? What makes you tick? What foundation of life, hope, and delight do you drink from? What really matters to you? What do you fear? What do you tend to worry about? Around what do you organize your life? Where do you find refuge or safety or comfort or escape or pleasure or security? What or who do you trust? Whose performance matters? On whose shoulders does the well-being of your world rest? That's, a, that's the last one's really good. On whose shoulders does the well-being of your world rest? So that means if those shoulders move out of the way, your, your life's going to come crashing down. The heart provides a level of depth in understanding human beings. And we will find much greater success in counseling others if we spend less time on superficial things and focus our energy on getting to know a person's heart. You notice on the the fact-finding questions, you're dealing with who, what, when, where, how. But the heart questions are why. And so you're always going to why questions. Because the why questions help us, help us understand the, the fruit of the matter. On your handout there, there is a few things on circumstances versus heart issues. And let me touch on these before we close. The circumstances, which are the, the what, the when, the who, the why, um, excuse me, the what, the when, the where, the how, those are all things uh, that can also relate to circumstances, not just the fruit of the matters. And circumstances don't control our situation. Now, circumstances have influence upon our, our uh, 
how we respond, but they don't control them. And thus, if someone would thinks, thinks if I just could change the circumstance, I'll fix the problem. If I could just get a better husband, then I won't respond so badly. If my children would just not have that personality trait that seems to be rubbing against me so difficultly at times, then I wouldn't respond with such anger. If I could just get a better job, then I wouldn't have near the difficulty of being mad at my boss. If I could just get a little more money, then I wouldn't have as much worry or fear about my finances. If I could just change whatever the circumstance is, then certainly my fruit is going to change. Now, it does help. Circumstances are things that we can change sometimes. And I would say if you can change your circumstances, for instance, if you go to into the hospital and you're visiting a friend and they're in excruciating pain and they're really having a difficulty with fear because of their excruciating pain and the nurse walks in and says, you know, I can give you a little bit of ibuprofen to help with your pain. That can quickly change the circumstances and help some things. So, yes. But we never see that whatever it is that would change the circumstances as the ultimate fix to whatever the problem is. Because still, you have to go encourage your friend, trust in the Lord. He's sovereign. He's the creator. He's the healer. Because that's getting to the heart of her fear. Her fearing that, I just can't stand this pain. I can't do it. But he says, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. But at the same time, she could probably also listen to you a lot better if she's not crying in pain. So... Give her a little ibuprofen or some essential oils or whatever you got to do. <laughs> In conclusion, biblical counseling de- defines humanity with a biblical anthropology. So biblical counseling looks at the human heart and says, the heart's the issue, not the circumstances. The inside's the issue. The outside will take care of itself. The heart is the core of who we are and the central control for our life. When we care for people, we must understand their hearts and help them to pursue a change of heart. Idolatry compromises our ability to live faithfully as believers. Do not put too much weight and importance in circumstances. Define your life according to your heart. And we never, we, we don't want to close with this thought that it, the heart is bad, this is horrible, you can't change it. Because, no, there's hope in Christ. And because of the Holy Spirit within us, there is so much hope. And not just hope, there's the ability and power through Christ to change. But you have to do it His way and not our own way. I remember one of the times that is most um, impactful or, or memorable for me when I was speaking to a young man who was struggling with specific sin and he had been told by some of his authorities that that specific sin was okay. It was kind of sort of a, in his authorities' mind, a gray area. I didn't see it as a gray area. I saw it as a black and white in Scripture. But God in His grace allowed me to say, if, if you could see it differently in Scripture, would you be open to that? And he said, yes, I would. So I, in His grace, was able to take him to some passages of Scripture to help him see that that was actually sin. It wasn't a gray area in choice. It was actually sin. 
And after reading some passages, I said, well, what do you think? And he said, I think it's sin. And he never did it again. Because he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Word of God, changed. And he repented of that sin and it didn't go back. That's the power that is in this living Word. It's not just, oh, my heart is bad, there's no hope. No, the heart is bad, but there's hope in Christ. There's hope in, in, the, in, a, in a powerful God. We sang that. This is our God. That, is, that God who raised Christ from the dead lives in you. And in that, in that is so much hope. And in that is so much grace. So we will discuss more f- fully how that process of change takes place over the coming weeks. But don't leave here with the thought that he, this guy said, the heart's the problem. And he also said, I can't fix my heart. So <laughs> no, Christ can fix hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the time that we've had to study your word and uh, be reminded of your kindness and goodness and grace in our lives. And we thank you, Father, that you've not left us to ourselves, but the Holy Spirit is within us. And through your word and by your grace and us conforming our hearts to worship to you and you alone, Father, change can not only take place, it can take place quickly. And you can restore the, the even years and years and years of, 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 of bad choices and, and sin and consequences of it. And you can, by your Spirit, Father, direct us back to where we need to go and allow us to, to walk differently. Father, we're no longer under the bondage of sin. And we see, according to James, Father, that that, the sin that we have comes from the desires of our heart. And so we see that through you, as we change those desires from me and stuff and things and people to God, that the fruit changes. And we're no longer under the power of that idol that seems to have such a grip on us, and yet it, it's a false grip, Father. And help us to see that. It has, it has no grip for a Christian. Satan wants us, in his deceit, to see it as something we could never break free from, and that's not true. And may we never believe that lie. So we thank you, Father, for your word this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity to worship corporately together. And pray that as we would move in a minute to do that and continue to sing and hear the preaching of the word, you might strengthen our hearts to believe in you. May you strengthen our faith, Father, in you. May it never be like Samson. May our faith never be in, in, the, in the circumstances or the externals or, the, or, or us, but it always be in you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.